spiritual drifting. It was the national sin of the nation of Israel. What lessons can we learn from the ancient Israelites about spiritual drifting? And if you've drifted spiritually, is there really and truly a way out of the mess that you might be in right now? A stimulating conversation coming your way. I promise this is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Boy, headlines all over the place out of the Middle East, Charlie, as usual. How do you keep track of all the stories that are unfolding? Uh, I'm a news junkie, John. I'm constantly uh, on the different websites, looking at the different uh, news sources coming out of Israel, uh, and just trying to balance what they're saying, because uh, they're like ours. You know, flip the uh, stations here in the States, and uh, you still get different uh, flavors, variances on the news. So I keep looking at as many as possible, and hopefully by looking at them all, I get an overall picture of what's happening. Well, Israel has been closely following our elections, trying to gauge how the results will impact their ongoing conflict with Iran. Charlie, what are their main concerns and and how do they believe the elections will impact their relationship with Iran? You know, they believe they're going to be threatened by Iran and continue to be threatened regardless of the election. Uh, During the campaign, both candidates promised to reach a deal with Iran. Uh, Trump rather optimistically promised uh, a deal within 30 days while Biden promised to have the U.S. rejoin the nuclear deal with Iran as long as they return to compliance with it. Now, Israel had concerns with both of those options. They're afraid that a desire to reach a quick deal could come at the expense of their security needs. It's impossible to envision Iran making significant concessions to the U.S. In fact, they're heading into their own national elections in June, and right now the most anti-Western factions in the country are expected to gain even greater control. Another concern for Israel is that no matter what happens in the U.S., our country's focus over the next four years won't be trying to stop Iran's aggression. Our country's priorities are going to be getting a handle on the coronavirus, restoring the economy, and confronting the threat posed by China. That means we won't have the time or the resources or, as some would say, the bandwidth to challenge Iran in any meaningful way. The leadership in Israel, then, has come to two conclusions. First, They believe the U.S. will continue to support them no matter which party's in control, and they expect the U.S. to remain their main ally, at least for the foreseeable future. But second, they believe they have to rely on themselves in any future confrontation with Iran, because while Iran might be an existential threat to them, it just isn't to the U.S., and we've got bigger fish to fry. Israel has begun harvesting salt from the Dead Sea. Now, that sounds like old news, but apparently it's something that's both new and quite significant. So what exactly is the great Dead Sea salt harvest? Yeah, most people think Israel has been taking salt from the Dead Sea for decades, but it's not really true. They mine the sea for chemicals like potash and magnesium, but not sodium chloride, you know, common salt. They actually let the salt remain as an unwanted byproduct. That salt has been filling the bottom of the drying ponds in that southern part of the Dead Sea, causing the water level in that area to rise. And the rising water level has been threatening the tourist hotels in that region. Hmm. So the Dead Sea Works Company has launched one of the most ambitious infrastructure projects in the history of the country. They purchased three electric maritime dredges built especially for the project. Uh, These dredges, John, are over 450 feet long and nearly 80 feet wide. And they're going to harvest the salt from the seabed in the southern part of the Dead Sea and then transfer that salt back to the northern part of the Dead Sea. And we're talking about a lot of salt. Each year, the Dead Sea Works produces 20 million tons of salt 
as a byproduct from extracting those other chemicals. Now, those who live in the U.S. are, are used to seeing rows of combines harvesting corn or wheat. Well, in the very near future, we might see the Dead Sea equivalent as these massive dredges harvest the salt from near the hotels at the southern end of the Dead Sea. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler. Charlie, the first major winter storms battered Israel this past week, I see, closing roads and even causing some flooding. What impact did the storms have on the nation as a whole? And does this suggest a third year of above average rainfalls might well be on the way? Well, two storms hit the country this week. Uh, The first closed the main highway down to a lot. It produced golf ball sized hail that battered and bruised some hikers who had to be rescued. Uh, It also closed the highway down by the Dead Sea near Engedi. It knocked out power for a time in Ashdod on the Mediterranean side of the country, and it dumped an inch of rain in the Jerusalem area. Uh, The storms haven't yet had an impact on the water level in the Sea of Galilee, though. But the sea is starting this rainy season at a much higher level than it was last year. Last year, the level was below the red line, that traditional low point for the lake, but it rose almost to the upper red line by the end of the season. That's a rise of about 10 feet. This year, the lake level is now only four feet below the upper red line. If the lake reaches the upper level, the dam at the southern end has to be opened to release the water into the Jordan River to keep the cities around the Sea of Galilee from flooding. Now, forecasters are initially predicting a below average winter rainfall, but long-range predictions can be very inaccurate. Mm -hmm. What it means is we'll keep an eye on the level of the lake as the rainy season continues. Archaeologists excavating at Bonius, the site of Caesarea Philippi, claim to have found an early Christian church sitting atop the Temple of Pan. Many of our listeners have been there, so take us to Bonius and explain this latest discovery. Yeah, this is an interesting discovery, though a number of the reports in the news are rather inaccurate. In fact, one described the discovery, quote, at the foot of breathtaking waterfalls in the scenic Bonius Nature Reserve. Now, those who've been to Israel know where those Bonius waterfalls are located. <laughs> uh, this discovery was not found at the foot of the waterfall or anywhere near the waterfall. Uh, the church was found about a mile upstream at the place where the water first flows out of the base of Mount Hermon. From the photographs that were released by the archaeologists, it's clear the church was located just in front of that large cave or cavern there right at the base of the rock. The church itself dates to around A.D. 400, and it was built on top of a Roman-era pagan temple. Uh, The archaeologists suggest, probably correctly, that the church was built to commemorate Peter's confession to Jesus. You know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In response to that, Jesus had said, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, Matthew 16 says that event took place in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the area today called Bonius, and that's why this church was likely built. Uh, The archaeologists also discovered a stone etched with small crosses, which they believe was graffiti left by visiting pilgrims. Uh, The excavation was undertaken as part of an effort to preserve and conserve that site. And all I can say, John, now is I can't wait to get back and see this new discovery. Charlie, real quick follow-up. You know, we have been there many times, and uh, I'm asking what led them to be doing any excavating at all? I mean, hasn't everything that's to be discovered been discovered all these years later? 
Well, you would think so, although this area, it's right where the uh, foundations of this ancient temple were built, and they had never actually looked below uh, what was found there on the surface. So I guess they thought, as long as we're here, we might as well look at that spot. And lo and behold, they find the remains of this church. Interesting. Time for one more quick news item from the region. Israeli researchers working with a team from the University of California, Berkeley, have developed a new approach that could slow or reverse age-related mental decline. What's the significance of this latest discovery coming out of Amazing Israel? You know, this discovery holds out hope that scientists might soon be able to stop or even reverse brain deterioration and its resulting cognitive decline that we now just assume is an inevitable part of aging. Uh, The treatment's based on their discovery that the blood-brain barrier breaks down as we age. Using MRI scans, they discovered that this breakdown occurs in nearly 60% of people by the age of 70. Uh, That breakdown allows inflammation to enter the brain and leads to a kind of mental fog. Uh, In particular, they found that albumin, uh, a protein made in the liver, can cross the blood-brain barrier and produce this inflammation in the brain. Testing their theory on mice, they found that by using an anti-inflammatory medicine that they've developed, they were able to heal the blood-brain barrier and reverse the effects of the inflammation. The researchers have formed a company now to develop and market the specific therapeutics that are going to be needed to reduce this brain inflammation. They hope their work will be able to reduce permanent damage from strokes, concussions, and traumatic brain injuries, and possibly even help older adults suffering from early dementia or Alzheimer's. John, we need to hope that this team of researchers from Ben Gurion University and the University of California, Berkeley, can move forward rapidly. This is the kind of innovation from amazing Israel that could have a positive impact on so many people. So you read your Gospels, and you've heard of the widow of Nain, Where was Nain? Charlie, uh, help me out there, and by way of that uh, conversation, lead us to your devotional subject for today. That's right. Actually, we're going to have a geography lesson as part of my devotional. Nain is on the north side of the Hill of Moray. On the south side was the uh, village of Shunem. Just on the west side of it was the town of Ophrah, Gideon's hometown. And they're all going to play a role as we have Jesus meeting with the widow of Nain. And that's Charlie's devotional coming up later on. First, though, a conversation about spiritual drifting, Israel's and yours and mine. (laughs) What can we learn from the ancient Israelites? That's all ahead on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Spiritual drifting was the national sin of the nation of Israel. What lessons can we learn from the ancient Israelites about spiritual drifting? And if you've drifted spiritually, is there really and truly a way out of the mess that you might be in right now? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, suggesting you hang on to that thought about messes. We're going to get right to it after we share this creative idea. Can you use the everyday stuff of life to build bridges into the lives of your unbelieving Jewish friends? Absolutely. Here's a great story from Beth Tavlin. She's on the administrative staff at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Beth? One day the cable guy came to fix our cable at the church here, and I gave this man a copy of the New Testament, and in the front it had the plan of salvation, and I explained that this is uh, really a very important gift that I was giving him. And he looked at me and he said, 
lots of people have tried to share about Jesus with him, but no one had done it in such a kind and considerate way. Mm. And so I don't have a relationship with this man, and I would never see him again. But I think treating someone with respect, but also treating the scriptures with respect in how you present them to someone is very important. Kindness, a smile, humility, those go a long way. And it's okay to give my Jewish friend, even if he's just the repair guy coming in, a copy of the New Testament. I've given lots of New Testaments to Jewish people, and I've met some who've said to me, five years ago, you gave me a scriptures, and I haven't, I still have it. I've not thrown it away. I've kept it all these years. Hmm. You never know what's going to happen to those seeds that you plant. You never know. So plant and the, away. The word of God does not return void. Beth Tablin with the Olive Tree Congregation joining us today with insights on the land and the book. So what's the way out of your mess? The one that you'd rather not talk to anybody about? <laughs> well, Rashawn Copeland says, start where you are. Rashawn Copeland is an evangelist and founder of I'm So Blessed Daily and Without Walls Ministries. He and his wife, Denise, have three children. Sean has also written the book, Start Where You Are. Well, let me say welcome to the land and the book, Rashawn. John, I'm so pumped to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Well, before we talk about Start Where You Are, let's talk about where you've been to Israel. I have to ask, yeah. what, what caught you by surprise when you traveled in the Holy Land? Well, you know, at that point, which it was fascinating, but at that point, I was a baby Christian, and I just believed that the moment I stepped off uh, the plane and I was around other Christians uh, that were with me on that trip, um, I couldn't help but to say I was encountering God in a new, fresh way. Like, it was just phenomenal. It was a great experience for me. Uh through just knowing this was the Holy Land. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It was yeah. the place where Jesus actually walked, where he talked, where he you know, lived his life, and also the disciples, where the church started. So I was like, wow, this is phenomenal. So <laughs> Yeah. So a- as you look back on that trip, what would you say is your favorite spot in Israel, and why? What I would say, honestly, but it was probably one of the most sobering spots, but it, it was my favorite. It had to be the Holocaust museum. You know, there were so many things that uh, really humbled uh, me, and also it gave me a fresh look at how dark things can actually be in this this world and how they were, you know, with Hitler and with, uh, you know, the, the Nazis and different things like that. And I just thought, wow, like, I can't believe this happened to God's people specifically, uh, but how God was still in that fulfilling his promises uh, that he made to the Jewish people and to every believer that would come to him. So I was like, if God can use this, he can use anything, even the little things that I was struggling with that day. Yeah, yeah. Today in the land and the book, we're visiting with Rashawn Copeland, who is not the least bit bashful about sharing what God impressed on his heart in traveling to Israel. We'll also be talking a bit about his book, Start Where You Are. Rashawn, how about a moment where uh, you would say, I'm never going to forget this, something in addition to the Holocaust that you experienced or felt in Israel, you wish you could maybe bottle up for all time? You know what? I think what it would be uh, was my moment that I spent um, right near the wall. I can't remember what the wall name was, but it was where the wall where uh, the Jews, you know, the Jewish folks, they were beaten up against the wall and they were praying to God 
And I was able to actually talk to a few of them. And it was a beautiful thing because I was able to share a little bit about my faith and in Christ, but also hear about what they were doing there that day. Mm -hmm. But I just thought it was so amazing how passionate they were for the Lord, our God, you know, of the, of the Bible. I was like, man, only if they would be that passionate about Jesus, the true Jesus, uh, the Messiah, like, man, that would be amazing. But uh, yeah, I learned a lot though. Like, am I as passionate about, you know, Jesus as they are about, uh, the God of Israel that they said, you know what I'm saying? So, which is, yeah, the, yeah. So <laughs> that was amazing though. I, I would go back there 120 times if I could. Yeah, for sure. Bible characters were certainly flawed people just like us, but yeah. you'd think that uh, with the advantages we have of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and the written word of God to instruct us, there ought to be a few less messes than we have. So let me ask, why can't we do better? You know, because a lot of times, here's for me personally, every time I try to do better without God, it proves to be kind of fatal, you know? (laughs) When I try to go my own way, um, I fail to, you know, really see and savor uh, God's way. And I think one thing that we always have to be reminded of, because me, for specifically, I was a hedonist. I was a guy who ran after my own selfish desires, but here's what it goes back to. God promises to meet our true needs, mm-hmm. but we can't expect him to satisfy our selfish desires. Yes. And I've always been about that, sadly, but I think once we get to that place where we say, God, I surrender all to you, literally, uh, whatever I don't have, whatever I have, whatever I want to be, whatever I feel I'm becoming, whatever it is, once we surrender everything to him, I think it changes us from the inside out, that moment, because he changes, he's near to the brokenhearted, those who need him, you know, and that changes everything, John. Well, tell me about a Bible character that you especially love that God met in their mess. I mean, we've got a lot of Bible characters with a lot of messes. Pick one that stands out to you. I I love Apostle Paul. I can't get too far away from him, you know, um, when he was on the road to Damascus, getting ready to go slaughter Christians, essentially, you know, Jesus met him right in the funk of his mess, right where, you know, he needed it most uh, when he was on the way, you know, and the glory of God showed up and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, and at that point, he was blind, but then he could see that Literally, you know, he was going the opposite way God had predestined and ordained mm-hmm. him to go. And I'm so grateful that God, you know, he doesn't look at bad resumes the way we look at bad resumes. Right. We as human <laughs> beings, we love flawless resumes, but God looks for those with blemishes and gaps. Yes, We can ask Noah the drunk. We can ask Isaac the daydreamer. We can ask Jacob the deceiver or Joseph the bragger, you know, we can ask any of those guys that God looks for those who don't have it together. Roshan Copeland is an evangelist, author, and founder of I'm So Blessed Daily and Without Walls Ministries. I sometimes wonder, Roshan, if most of us wallow in defeat longer because we're just plain embarrassed or humiliated by the mess that we've created. I mean, you think of David. I mean, he could well have succumbed to that mindset after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, your thoughts on him? David was fascinating. I absolutely love David. 
he really showed me one thing about the beauty of brokenness, like, uh, and how brokenness is the place where God, he will stop us, he will halt us, he will kill our progression, and he will cause us to hit a dead end, which David had hit, you know, uh, and he'll show us that all that we are, all that we have, all that we do in and of ourselves proves to be utterly insufficient. And as we see David at this place where he tried every single thing he could to fulfill his own desires. But at the end of the day, I love that he cried out this in Psalm 51. He said, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. You know, and he said, I didn't sin against Bathsheba. I didn't sin against all these other people, but I've sinned against you, God. So he acknowledged his own brokenness. And he knew that sometimes God breaks us to save us. And yes. and I'm so thankful that God does that for us, right? Even right. if it's painful. Right. <laughs> hey, what's your counsel right now for somebody who feels their mess is so bad, there's no way mm-hmm. out? I, I'm guessing there's some land of the book listeners, good people, who've maybe made some bad choices and they're feeling there's no way out. Speak to them, Rashawn. Love it. So I would tell you, if you're listening in right now, you feel your mess is too messy for God or uh, your dirt is too dirty for God. I would just let you know that Jesus um, was the perfect sacrifice for you. And Jesus didn't come for the version of you that is perfect or who you pretend to be or who you wish you were, but who you actually are, uh, which is we're all broken, the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And, and he came for those who sit, are sick and need a doctor. And I'm so thankful. Here's what I can really tell you. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So there's this beautiful call out to all of us uh, that we can be saved in the moment we cry out to him, you know? He'll answer the call to all who cry out to him. And that's for you today. Like, you can come to him weary and burdened. He'll give you rest. Hmm. Take his yoke, because you'll find rest for your soul. Well, when you travel to Israel, the land where the stories of God's chosen people unfolded, you see it all just a bit differently. And you realize, just like us, they had serious issues with spiritual drifting, something you address in your book. What can we learn from the ancient Israelites along the lines of spiritual drifting? I'd say one of the clearest things uh, that we can learn is, um, you know, disobedience to God never leads us to the, the, the promise of God. Like every single time throughout the Bible, we see that someone, you know, disobeyed the word of God and never ended well. Mm-hmm. And that's a great example for us, you know, to follow that God's voice is trustworthy and he's, his word is true and he's a faithful God, but what we need to do is, you know, ask God to give us a faith to follow him and not only follow him, you know, as a stern officer, like that doesn't necessarily know, you know, exactly what he has for us, but follow him as a friend, save him as a savior, but also understand that he's a great father to fear, yes. deeply respect that knows what's best for mm-hmm. us. Even amid our mess, <laughs> we can come to him. Rashawn Copeland has written Start Where You Are, and it's a pleasure to have him as our guest on The Land and the Book. You write, You are a glorious work in progress, a beloved child in whom God delights, a person on the brink of revival. Now, Mm. why does that feeling escape us so often? Why instead do we hear condemnation in our heads? 
Well, you know, I think the big thing about that is uh, we all have this side of ourselves that, that, that wants to achieve, that wants to perform. But when we get to the place where it's, we understand that it's all been done for us, Jesus said it is finished, like he finished the final work. Well, he lived the life we uh, couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die. Uh, and that work, you know, is sufficient. Our work, you know, as the Bible says at times, can be dirty as filthy rags. So at the end of the day, we need to entrust ourselves to Christ and believe that grace is enough and it's made a way and put away the legalistic ways. Like I got to work myself to yes. God. It's about merit, but entrusting ourselves to the father who, who who's faithful and who's finished, fulfilled the promise that he set out to do through his son, Jesus. In one chapter, you write, nothing robs us of our joy faster than the utter hopelessness that springs from hardships, and nothing encourages our joy more than a heart that remains desperate for Jesus, even when tragedy strikes. So how do we cultivate a heart that remains desperate for Jesus? The way we cultivate um, a heart that remains desperate for Jesus is seeking Him with all of our hearts, even when it's hard to, like leaning not onto our own understanding, but acknowledging Jesus in all our ways and allowing the Word uh, to become our chief satisfaction. You know, I heard John Piper say it like this, we need to pray for new taste buds on the tongue of our heart. Mm. And I think that's so important for each and every one of us to ask God, give me a new desire, new delight in you specifically and what you desire for my life rather than my own desires. Well said. Well, Rashawn, our time has flown by. But I want to thank you for your insights. So many lessons in this book, Start Where You Are. Appreciate your taking us to Israel virtually through your own uh, eyes and experiences and also for sharing from the book, Start Where You Are. A link to that at our website. We'll let you go, Rashawn. Have a great day. Awesome. Thank you, John. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And next on The Land of the Book, Charlie Dyer returns with your questions. Keep it right here. Welcome back to The Land of the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger smiling because I find it intriguing to learn what you are puzzled by, what you are wondering about as you go through Scripture. Everybody's got questions, and this is the place to get some answers. So fasten your seatbelts as we work our way through the next, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so looking at your questions. Uh, we'll start today with Norm, and uh, he says regarding the temple's location, some suggest the correct location is not the Temple Mount, but on Mount Zion, just south of a Temple Mount, or the City of David. Your thoughts? Yeah, and uh, this is one of those where I, I realize people need to go to Israel if they really want to understand the Bible. If they would stand on the original City of David and then recognize how big the Temple complex was, not just the little building, but the whole complex, what they'd realize is it doesn't fit. Uh, if the temple had been built over the Gihon Spring, the temple complex would have gone from down in the middle of the Kidron Valley all the way over to the valley on the other side. Uh, the area is just too narrow to fit it. Uh, there's another problem as well, and that is uh, if the temple were down by the Gihon Spring, what stood on the what's now called the Temple Mount? Uh, I know these alternative views say it was a Roman army camp, but that doesn't fit. Uh, there were Jewish ritual baths along the southern and western sides leading up to that Temple Mount area. Why would a Jew uh, need to take uh, a ritual bath before going to a Roman camp? 
Uh, that purity was needed to go before God. And in the southwest corner, they actually found an inscription in the excavations, uh, and it said in Hebrew, to the place of trumpeting. Well, if it was a Roman army camp, why was there something written in Hebrew that said, this is where you're supposed to stand and blow your trumpet? Uh, all those pieces put together tell me that the temple stood on the Temple Mount. Uh, it just doesn't fit anywhere else. Our thanks to Norm for that question. He listens, by the way, to WSEW in New Hampshire. We love it when you include the radio station that you're listening to as you send in your question. This one from Gabriel, he says, how do I make sense of the creation of evil and sin? Yeah, well, if God isn't the author of evil, then where did evil come from? That's really the, the key. And I've got to start with an assumption. God can permit something he doesn't necessarily approve of. Uh, that is, evil can be part of his permissive will if it's not part of his perceptive will. Uh, for example, God says you shall not commit murder. That's his perceptive will. But he does allow murders to take place, even though he's made it clear that those are abominations to him. He doesn't cause the evil, but he permits it to happen. Uh, so we have to ask ourselves, why would God allow something to happen if it's not his ultimate will? And I think the answer is that God will sometimes permit things to take place, even if they're contrary to his will, to accomplish a greater or a larger purpose. For example, in Genesis 50, Joseph you know, told his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Well, what was done to Joseph by the brothers and by Potiphar's wife was evil, but God was able to use it to accomplish an even greater good. Uh, that's what I think Romans 8:28 means when it says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Mm. It's not that all things are good, but God can work through all things to bring about what's ultimately good. So now to the ultimate question, where did evil come from if it wasn't caused by God? Well, before the creation of the world we have today, God created the angelic realm, and we know that Satan was created. He was an, a perfect angel until sin was found in him. That's what Ezekiel 28 says. He was created a guardian cherub, uh, blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Uh, in other words, the sentence is written in a way that lets us know sin originated with Satan himself. God didn't create sin. He created Satan, and it was Satan who chose to sin and rebel. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, we can't answer all the questions, but we do know God didn't create sin because it's contrary to his very nature as God. But by creating angels and humans and with free will to make moral choices, he permitted sin to enter the uh, angelic and human realm. And in giving us that free will, he knew it would be abused, but he provided a way to redeem fallen humanity. So in the end, he had a plan to work all things together for good. Thanks for connecting with us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. As always, we're uh, entertaining questions that come from listeners as they study the Bible, and yours is welcome anytime. Vivian listens to us in Mineola, Texas. She takes us to Matthew 24, verse 2, that says, Not one stone will be left. This is regarding the uh, temple destruction. She points out, though, that the western wall is still present. Is that not part of the temple? Yeah, and first comparing that, uh, you go, wait, that, yeah, how does that happen? Well, as Jesus and the disciples were walking up the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, they pointed out, literally it says, the buildings of the temple to him. And then Jesus said, do you see the, the, the buildings? Not one of them will be left. And uh, in reality, he's talking about the buildings, the temple building proper, the portico of Solomon, all the buildings that were up on top of the, the temple mount. And all of those were destroyed. The stones were poured down into the valley. But he wasn't talking about the platform proper, the, the foundation on which it was built. Uh, he was talking about the buildings constructed there. It'd be like someone saying, uh, your house is going to be torn down. Well, the, the slab might be left, but the house was destroyed. And indeed, that's what happened in A.D. 70. 
uh, but the western wall wasn't part of the temple buildings or structures. It was part of the retaining wall that was built uh, to build a platform on which the temple itself was built. Daniel writes, I love all that you do in teaching and answering questions. It's very helpful. Well, we're glad to hear that, Daniel. And he has a question, Charlie, from uh, Numbers 19. What is the significance of the ceremony outlined in Numbers 19, this idea of making cleansing water? He says, I've heard you talk a little bit about Israel's search for a red heifer. Are they planning to do the same thing as in this passage? Yeah, the religious Israelis do want to find a red heifer and follow the regulations mentioned there in Numbers 19. Uh, While they don't need the ashes of the red heifer to build the temple, they do need the ashes before the priests can be ritually cleaned to be able to perform the services of the temple. And I say that because in Numbers 19 verse 20, God said, But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he's defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He's unclean. So someone who's ritually impure isn't able to be cleansed without the ashes of the red heifer. Uh, That's why they want to find a red heifer and prepare that water of cleansing. Here's a question. What's the significance behind the different offerings and sacrifices from the Old Testament? I have trouble keeping some of them straight. One example being the wave offering. Yeah, and I'll start this way. The sacrifices and offerings can indeed be confusing. So let me recommend a good article. Uh, there's a uh, website called the Jewish Virtual Library. And in that Jewish virtual library, they have an article on sacrifices and offerings. It provides a good historical understanding from a Jewish perspective on the sacrificial system. Uh, One thing especially to note is that sacrifices couldn't atone for malicious, deliberate, or uh, some would call them high-handed sins. Uh, That was a weakness, and it was a weakness that only the sacrifice of Jesus could resolve. What's the significance for all the Old Testament laws that God stated? Was it simply to set these people apart from other people groups? And do any of the Old Testament laws still apply to Christians today, writes one listener. You know, I see several purposes for the Mosaic Law. One purpose was to keep the Jewish people separate or unique. They were a people chosen to God, and some of the laws were designed to help them maintain that distinction. Other laws reflected the holy character of God. Uh, The Ten Commandments, for the most part, fall into that category. Uh, Still other laws were provided in a way that allowed a a sinful but redeemed people to stand before a holy God. Uh, The sacrifices were part of that. Some of the laws were were simply laws unique to the Jewish people as a nation, kind of like our laws on building codes or driving regulations are unique to us as a nation. Uh, For example, the law to put a parapet on top of their roof is a very specific law that made perfect sense in that culture. It was a safety law for a flat-topped building to keep children and others from falling off. I don't want to ramble, but I do see several different reasons for the law. As someone observed, the the law seems to fall into three major groups. Uh, There were civil laws that were unique to Israel as a nation. There were ceremonial laws that focused on how they were to approach and worship a holy God. And there were moral laws that reflected the very character of God and expressed his holy demands on all humanity. And certainly those moral laws, the ones that reflect who God is as a person, do still apply to Christians today because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's a look at questions that have come into us from email. The connection for you, if you'd like to send a question, is the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie, I bet a lot of listeners have uh, never been to our website, thelandandthebook.org. 
One of the features there is a books tab. You can click on and see books that Charlie and I have written. Charlie, uh, give us a a rundown of of one or two that you think would be helpful to people as they listen to the land and the book. Well, I'm always uh, partial to uh, the 30 Days books, the 30 Days in the Land with Jesus and 30 Days in the Land of the Psalms and A Voice in the Wilderness. All three of those look at specific places in Israel and try to tie them into our lives today. All right, check out the website, by the way, where you can always learn not just about books that Charlie and I have written, but about past guests, previous uh, programs, future programs as well at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next right here on The Land and the Book. Stick around. Welcome to segment four of The Land and the Book, where Dr. Charlie Dyer opens his Bible, takes us to a specific spot, and makes that place come alive visually for us over the radio. Sound impossible? Ah, it's not, as you're about to discover. First, though, let's check in with this Holy Land experience. Hi, this is Charlene Hutchison. When I visited Israel, I went with some people from church, and we had a wonderful trip, and it was a gift from the Lord to me. And my son, we had not been able to take a vacation for several years, and my husband had um, left me. And so we had been given this gift to be in Israel and really get close to the Lord. And my son uh, had decided to get baptized in Israel. He had not been baptized in water at all, and he had been saved since he was eight years old. And every time someone was baptized at church, I would talk to him and say, did you want to consider, would you like to have a baptism? And he'd said no. And so before we left, he talked to me and said, Mom, I want to get baptized. Well, Jesus was baptized. So it was such a blessing um, to see him get baptized in Israel. And that was a true experience and a blessing to be there and, and watch my son make that decision. And I was uh, just thank the Lord that I was able to be there and my son was baptized there. Thank you for taking my message. Aren't you encouraged by the testimonies that we bring you through these Holy Land experience moments? I am. It's always neat to hear what other people are thinking. Well, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain. Boy, what a story that is. Charlie, what you got for us? Imagine reading through the journal of a typical first-time visitor to Israel. Day one, our intrepid band of tourists have already visited Herod the Great's seaport of Caesarea. We saw his palace, the theater, the hippodrome, the harbor, and the aqueduct he built to supply the city with water. We then drove to the top of Mount Carmel and relived Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And after that, we drove to the hill of ancient Megiddo, Armageddon, visiting the Canaanite high place and the ancient water tunnel while also learning about Megiddo's strategic role in history and prophecy. And now it's time for lunch. You might think that diary entry is just a tiny bit exaggerated, but it's not. Israel is such a small country that key biblical sites pop up every few miles. The first-time visitor can become overwhelmed, feeling like he or she is drinking from a fire hose. But don't feel badly. 
Mark Twain felt the same mental challenge. He described the information overload this way. How it wears a man out to have to read up a hundred pages of history every two or three miles, for verily the celebrated localities of Palestine occur that close together. How wearily, how bewilderingly they swarm about your path. And he was carefully picking his way through rock-strewn paths on horseback. We're zipping between sites on a bus over modern highways. Well, with Megiddo in our rearview mirror, we're now driving north across the Jezreel Valley toward our lunch spot. Yet even here, there's much to see. In front of the bus, just to the right, is the hill of Moray, with a small village at its base. The town, nestled on the southern slopes of the hill, is where the Old Testament town of Shunem was located. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha the prophet raised to life the Shunammite woman's son in this town. It was an amazing miracle. But right now, it's little more than a curiosity to a busload of tourists looking for lunch. Directly in front of us is a large modern town named Afula. It preserves the name of the biblical village that once sat here, Ophrah. Don't recognize the name? Well, it's the hometown of Gideon, the judge who defeated the Midianites with just 300 men. Our lunch spot is just on the other side of town, and we've arrived. But before you go in to eat, let me point out just a few other locations. First, see that single rounded hill off in the distance? That's Mount Tabor, the hill where Deborah and Barak routed the forces of Sisera. And the ridge directly in front of us is the Nazareth Ridge. Jesus' hometown is located on top. One last spot. Look back at the hill of Moray. You're now looking at the northern slope of the hill. See that village at its base right in the center? That's the village of Nain. I want to talk about it, but first, let's get something to eat. (laughs) It wasn't lunch great, and you thought you were going to lose weight coming to Israel. But before we get on the bus, look again at that hill of Moray. As mountains go, Moray is not that spectacular. The ridge is just a few miles long, and the highest peak is less than 1,700 feet high. Take note that the village of Nain is toward the base on the north side, just below the highest peak. Do you remember the village on the other side of the hill, just below that same peak? That's right, it was Shunem. Now, you're ready to open your Bible and look at Luke 7. Luke 7 records a miracle not found in any of the other Gospels. Jesus went to a town called Nain. He knew the location of the village because it's clearly visible from the edge of the Nazareth Ridge where he grew up but this is the only recorded time he visited the town. Just before this miracle, Luke notes Jesus was in Capernaum. He healed the centurion's servant there, and it must have created quite a stir. The visit to Nain took place soon afterward, Luke says, and Jesus was still mobbed by people attracted to this miracle worker. His disciples and a large crowd went along with him. When Jesus and his band of followers arrived in Nain, they encountered a sad scene. A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Losing a loved one is always hard. The woman understood the heartache of death because she had already lost her husband. Now she was burying her only son. Her sorrow at his loss was compounded by her fear of the future. In Jesus' day, the social security system was simple. Work hard and have lots of kids. Hopefully enough of them will survive into adulthood to take care of you in your old age. And that meant this woman was virtually destitute. No husband, no son, no one to care for her. She was alone and helpless. Luke then focused on a touching detail we often overlook. When Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her. 
Luke reminds us that Jesus cares for the despondent, the helpless, and those who seemingly have no hope. It's likely that others felt compassion for this childless widow as well. But what sets Jesus apart from them is his divine nature. He's also the God who can change her circumstances. He walked to the pallet carrying the dead body and cried out, Young man, I say to you, get up. As the man sat up, Jesus gave him back to his mother. Few funeral processions end with the corpse crawling out of the hearse to embrace grieving family members. We resonate with this story about Jesus' compassion and power, but we usually stop here. I want us to look carefully at the crowd's reaction. Luke writes, They were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And here's the question. Why did the crowd associate this miracle with the coming of a prophet? I believe the answer can be found geographically. Just three miles away, on the other side of the hill of Moray, Elisha the prophet raised a woman's son from death to life. That was the greatest miracle the people in this region had ever experienced until now. No wonder they saw Jesus as a prophet and recognized that his miraculous raising of this dead woman's son was a sign that God had indeed come to visit his people. Sadly, few scholars make this connection. Look in your Bible to see if there's a cross-reference to 2 Kings 4 or some notation comparing Jesus' miracle to Elisha's raising of the Shunammite woman's son. Some recognize the geographical connection, but many do not. So what can we learn from our visit to Nain? I'd like us to walk away from this encounter carrying two key truths. The first truth is the reminder of Jesus' power and compassion. He cares for those who are hurting. And as the divine Son of God, He has the power to meet our greatest needs. If you're mired in pain and heartache today, don't let go of this truth. The second truth is the reminder that the Bible is about real events that happen to real people in real places. It's no accident that two sons were raised to life within three miles of each other. Jesus' miracle paralleled that of Elisha, and the crowd made the connection. The more we understand the places where the events of the Bible took place, the more we'll understand the Bible's message. And in the end, our goal is to know the Word of God so we can have a greater understanding of and relationship with the God of the Word. Well, thank you, Charlie. And one of the things that I think you do so well in these devotionals is helping us understand the places where the events of the Bible did take place. So appreciate your good encouragement there. Listen, our website, thelandandthebook.org, allows you to hear today's program, not just the devotional, but the entire thing again. You can also share us with a friend, and boy, we appreciate it when you do. The podcast is there not just for you, but for your friends as well. So thanks for passing the good word along for sharing that link at thelandandthebook.org. Our time is gone. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.